0: The direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin.
1: Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Freedom Forum Radio is for you, faithful listeners, no matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom individual freedom your freedom where it comes from what it means to you and most importantly how to hang on to it
2: you are listening to dr dan's freedom forum this is part two of this very special interview with michael howe
1: so that's that's in many ways similar to what happens in congress in washington the senate and senate and house bills don't match exactly, that the differences have to be hashed out. Then they have to, they have to go back to each individual house uh, to, again, uh, be voted on. Presumably, the compromise that was reached would be acceptable to both houses. Now, I'm sure that doesn't always happen, though, does
2: it? That's true. They may fail to do that, and then the bill would fail to pass. But once it's enrolled, the presiding officers of each chamber must sign it, and then it's said to be ratified. That means it can then go to the governor to be signed into law. But see, then you still haven't gotten a law until the governor actually signs it, which the governor can veto it. But under the North Carolina law, if the, session, if the General Assembly is still in session and the governor receives it, he or she has 10 days to sign it. If he does not sign it, it becomes law on its own. But if the session has adjourned when the governor receives it, then he or she has 30 days to act on it, so a little bit longer. Okay. If the bill is vetoed, then the governor is required to reconvene the assembly unless a majority of both houses say that it won't be necessary.
1: And it takes a three-fifths vote to, of members present in both houses to override a veto. I think that's interesting. Whenever you see three-fifths of members present, you know, that to me is a is a and a huge opportunity for shenanigans.
2: Well, yes, but it's also an opportunity, perhaps, to get a bill passed that you might not be able to get if everyone was present. It just depends on which side of the aisle you're on.
1: Well, I can, I certainly can see that. But, you know, I guess you'd have to say, or, or, or I would certainly say, that if you sneak a bill through with just barely a quorum there, and uh, what is a quorum, by the way?
2: I'm not sure, Dr. Dan.
1: Well, I'm sure it's not 100%. So if you could actually be in legal session with less than all the members present, and you could sneak a bill through, I mean, that's what happened with the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. So it kind of really says we're playing fast and loose with uh, the process to be able to do that. But nevertheless, I think you've given us a really good explanation of of, uh, how the sauces are made and I'm sure that in most states that there are very similar processes that that uh, the government has to go through. Uh, it strikes me, though, the committees are – that's an area that, uh, where politics can be played in a very vicious and meaningful way, wouldn't you say?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I agree. If you, have, if you override a veto with a relatively small number of the General Assembly – It's less representative of the people. That is certainly true.
1: So let's get down to the meat and the heart of this discussion here. And let's talk about legislation related to firearms in North Carolina, since that's what you're familiar with. And by the way, uh, I would like you to uh, give a plug to your service, because you provide a very useful and very important service as you provide this information to a lot of people on a mailing list so that people are aware on a regular basis of what's going on in Raleigh. So how do people sign up for that notification?
2: Well, I don't maintain a website. I simply, as you say, keep a list of those who have requested to receive the information. And if if they simply email me and in the body of the message, say, add me. I would certainly add them to the email, the legislative update that I produced. And that's uh, OspreyGrad2002 at gmail.com.
1: I'm going to repeat that. That's Osprey, O-S-P-R-E-Y, Grad, G-R-A-D, 2002 at gmail.com. So if you write to Michael Howe and ask to be added to the email list, then you will get regular notifications about what bills, specifically gun-related bills or Second Amendment bills, that are going through the North Carolina legislature, uh, what bills are going through and what their status is. And I also uh, presume that you will tell them at what kind of action they can take in order to support the passage or defeat of various bills or amendments.
2: Certainly.
1: So let's get started here. Let's try to take up some of the The previously, previous significant firearms legislation—that's not necessarily current in session, but in the recent session—and I will preface this by saying that in North Carolina, for 134 years, the legislature was controlled by the Democrats. That was since Reconstruction, and it was not until 2010 that the republican party gained control of both houses for the first time in 134 years and so that is a very important point because for all those 134 years we really were at the mercy of what the democrat party wanted to do so now for the first time starting in 2010 we actually had an opportunity to pass legislation that supports the Constitution, the states' rights, the the Tenth Amendment, Ninth Amendment, and all the other things that we have come to love and appreciate as citizens uh, of the state of North Carolina and subsequently of uh, America, the United States of America. So let's talk about some of the previous significant firearm legislations that uh, has occurred in North Carolina.
2: Well, Dr. Dan, if we go back a couple of years to 2011, That was when the legislature passed the Castle Doctrine under H.B. That was House Bill 650. And a number of states already had the Castle Doctrine, so it was not unique. But what was so special about it is it enhanced the ability of an individual to defend themselves with a firearm, the concept being your home is your castle. And if someone was to break into your house... Originally, they had to pose a physical threat to you, an imminent threat, before you could use lethal force to actually defend yourself. Under the Castle Doctrine, it makes it much easier and defensible to use lethal force if someone breaks into your home, but it extends that coverage to your automobile. And if you're somewhere that you have the right to be, such as if you're staying in a hotel, or you may be camping in a tent, out at a park someplace. Those become your domicile at that point, and the castle doctrine allows you to use lethal force to defend yourself. So that was something that uh, that we had not had in Carolina before, and it's, it's vastly improved the ability uh, to for people to defend themselves. We're going to take a quick break right here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. More with Michael Howe right after this.
1: So tell me so, what kind of a, under the Castle Doctrine, uh, obviously, if you feel there's a physical, a threat to you from a physical point of view, there's no question you could use a lethal force. And I understand, like you said, the Castle Doctrine extends your domicile to a variety of places where you may be staying, although it's not your physical house itself. But what additional protections does that give? Uh, the citizens of North Carolina.
2: Well, before, I mean, you have to understand that just because something's a law, that does not mean that some aggressive prosecutor is not going to try to prosecute a citizen who uses a lawfully owned firearm to defend themselves. Because there are a lot of people in prosecutorial positions who may be anti-gun or do not support the idea of a castle doctrine. But these statutory protections were intended to try and minimize that sort of thing in order to give a defense. So whereas under the old system, if someone kicked in your door and walked in and took your television and turned and walked out, well, you weren't directly threatened. Physical danger of of, uh, death or serious physical injury was not imminent. You could use physical force to try and stop someone but you could not use lethal force. Under the Castle Doctrine, it strengthens that and gives the homeowner more leeway to use lethal force in order to defend the home. And if by extending that to, say, an automobile, well, that would include, say, a carjacking where someone just wants to yank you out of the car and take the car and go. You would have the ability to use lethal force. And I think that gun owners need to also bear in mind that just because you may have the right to use lethal force to defend yourself, it isn't always necessarily a good idea to just fire a firearm if it isn't necessary, because you're probably going to go through a lot of evil to defend yourself, depending on the, uh, the district that you're living in at the time. So sometimes the best part of valor is discretion. But the Castle Doctrine was intended to protect homeowners to a greater degree than under the old self-defense law.
1: I think that's really good advice, Michael. Um, and, and I think you're really right. Uh, once a homeowner fires a weapon at another person, his life is going to change. Absolutely. There's no question about that. But, you know, uh, there is the real threat these days of, of home invasions, uh, people who do break into your home, sometimes they break into your home to do, to, to steal, not expecting you to be home, and they're surprised and you're surprised, but they continue to come at you and be aggressive. Uh, you're at real risk, even though they really had no intention of harming you. Of course, with home invasions, there is an intent to harm, uh, otherwise they wouldn't be coming in when they know that you're physically there. But again, the Castle Doctrine and common sense tells you that it is much better to be alive than not to be alive. And as they're saying, it's better to be tried by 12 than carried by 6. So if you are really under that kind of threat, you need to protect yourself. You need to stay alive and protect yourself and your family uh, from physical harm that could really make the rest of your life uh, uh, a very difficult prospect if you are severely injured and no longer can live a normal life. But you're right. If someone is just coming in the house to steal your TV and uh, sees you there and turns around and start run starts running out, well, <clears throat> it certainly would not be a smart thing to shoot him in the back as he's running out the door.
2: Absolutely. And is a television the loss of a television really worth everything you're going to have to go through in a defensive shooting if it really wasn't necessary? So that's something that everyone needs to consider. And you know what's really important is training, not just firearms training, but understanding the specifics of self-defense and using a firearm. And so anyone who's going to take it on themselves to defend themselves with a firearm needs to be properly trained.
1: I would definitely uh, wholeheartedly urge our listeners to take that advice because training with a firearm is not just being able to hit the target, it involves knowing when to use a firearm, when it is justified, and that's the kind of training that you must have in order to, to be safe personally and also to remain out of legal difficulties. So, Michael, I have absolutely no, no argument whatsoever. That is excellent advice, and uh, thank you for bringing that to our attention. So anything else about the Castle Doctrine that we should know?
2: No, but I would like to mention one other piece that came up in 2012 during the short, short session last year that was the result of a federal lawsuit that was brought by a plaintiff named Bateman against the state in a federal case known as Bateman V. Purdue, Purdue being the former governor of Beverly Purdue, in which he argued that the at that time, the prohibition against being able to carry to transport, Firearms and ammunition during declared states of emergency was unconstitutional. And the court found for the plaintiff, if you, under the Second Amendment, can keep arms, but then under certain conditions can't bear arms, and it's a simple state of emergency that doesn't involve some upheaval or martial law, for example, then that was a violation of the Constitution. And the state had to modify its Emergency Management Act to reflect that. A good example is a hurricane that comes through, but it only affects the coast, coastal counties. A statewide declaration of a state of emergency would then affect Central and Western North Carolina that may have absolutely no fallout, but under the old law, you would not be able to transport weapons or ammunition. So, and, you know, and that's at a time, even if you're in an area like a storm area, power lines down, no electricity, no cell towers. Uh, There may be looting, uh, roads out, bridges out. That would be the time that you would be most on your own and perhaps not able to get assistance from emergency services. So it made absolutely no sense to prevent people from being able to lawfully carry firearms during this time.
1: So, to be clear, and I was obviously also aware of this, and that act was, I mean, an act of stupidity. I mean, how could any government want to disarm its citizens when they need their own personal protection the most. That is not just unfair. Uh, It goes way beyond unfair. I mean, people have the right to live. They have the right to remain alive. They have the right to do whatever they need to do, uh, not to the detriment of others who are innocent, but if people are about to put them in harm's way, they certainly have the right to... To remain alive and to do what's necessary to remain alive. So what this basically does is no matter what the state of North Carolina does, they can declare whatever they they want in terms of emergency, but that does not mean that the police can just go knock on your door, take all your firearms away just because a hurricane came through or whatever. Correct. Well, that's good. And that was HB 843, and that is a law, is that correct?
2: Yes, sir. That was signed into law last year.
1: Well, thank God for that. So let's go on to some of the current gun legislation that we're dealing with at this point. What's what's going on currently with pro- and anti-gun legislation in Raleigh?
2: Well, if we look first at pro-gun rights bills, there are actually uh, some that have actually passed one house of the assembly and that is the House of Representatives. And what is probably the most watched at this point, the most significant because it contains the most uh, pro-gun rights um, provision, is House Bill 937. That's sponsored by Representatives Schaefer, Burr, Faircloth, and Cleveland, and it actually has 24 co-sponsors. It passed the House May 7th. Uh, I might add that Representative West... In uh, House District 120, he represents Cherokee, Clay, Graham, and Macon counties in Western Carolina, voted in favor of 937. But Representative Queen, who represents Haywood, Jackson, and Swain counties, voted against it. It's uh, currently in the Senate Rules Committee awaiting a hearing. Now, the main provisions, uh, it would make it a criminal offense, or actually a Class Two misdemeanor, to have uh, firearms unsecured and unsupervised in a home that you had children under age 12. So if you're under age 12, if you weren't in possession of that weapon, it would have to be secured in some fashion so that it could not fire. But a concealed handgun permit holder would be able to have a handgun in a locked vehicle while parked in a state government parking lot or on a college campus parking lot. Currently, you can't carry any firearm onto educational property. Also, concealed handgun permit holders would be able to carry into restaurants which serve alcohol. Still could not consume alcohol, but you could have the concealed weapon. And in assemblies that charge admission, for example, a theater. Right now, if you go into a theater in North Carolina, you cannot carry a concealed weapon. But we saw in Aurora, Colorado... That, that was the very place where a gunman attempted to commit mass murder. So this would correct that for North Carolina.
0: And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. They call them People, I just love to hear that old man sing. Yeah, when I play the hoochie coochie man,
1: I get joy in everything.
0: Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning.